As for the screen, it's been a little bit over two years, but believe it or not, I used to take a time to run a couple 5K races uh, each year. I, I enjoyed doing it, and just it gave me a motivation to go out and run a little bit, and I enjoyed having a goal to pursue. Now, I wasn't particularly great <laughs> at it. Um, on the left, you're seeing a race where I did get first place for my age group, but there's a couple caveats to, to note with that. Um, the, they gave a separate award for the top finishers. So the top three finishers were also in my age group. So technically, I got fourth in my age group, but since they got the overall prizes, I was there. Also, that was a race in the middle of July, and <laughs> there wasn't a huge participation in it. More often than not, it was a race like this one where I finished five minutes behind who the person who was in front of me <laughs> in my age group. So um, not the fastest, but I enjoyed being able to take that time to run, hoping to get back into it soon, maybe pushing someone in a stroller as I do those races, which won't help with time, but may help me enjoy it a little bit more. But as I was thinking about the fact that I used to take the time to run those 5Ks, maybe you've run in a race like that, or maybe you did cross country, or you've seen a marathon, or perhaps participated. But what's interesting about races like that is it's not on a track. You're running in uh, any number of directions, and you cannot always see the finish line or that end goal you're headed toward. If it's your first time running there, you might not even be 100% sure where it is. Is it over this hill, around this bend? I, I don't know, but I just have to keep going. You don't know when you'll finally be able to see that finish line. And if we think about life like a race, which the passage of scripture we're going to use today does that very thing, it's very similar to that. Our lives are a long marathon that have an unknown endpoint. We don't know how much time we have left. So what should we do? How should we live? Well, in our passage today, the author is going to use that picture, that image of a race to talk about how we should live. And the author is going to argue that we shouldn't try to figure out when the end is, where the finish line is. Instead, if we want to run well, we should keep our eyes, our focus on Jesus. We're continuing in a study of the book of Hebrews we call Jesus is Better. We just spent two weeks in chapter 11. If you've never read the book of Hebrews, chapter 11 is a chapter that lists all these great Old Testament heroes of the faith. These people you may have heard of like Abraham and Moses, these great heroes and what they did for God by believing and trusting in him. But now he's going to switch and he's going to present to us an image of an athletic event or a race. And it actually makes sense for him to do this because believe it or not, even though this was written about 2000 years ago, the Olympics existed then. They weren't the Olympics as we know them today, but they were the Olympics where they happened in Greece in their original form. And using that image, our author is arguing that in the race of life, focusing on Jesus is better than looking at anything else. Jesus is better than the finish line. So if you're not already there, I encourage you to turn your Bibles to the book of Hebrews chapter 12. We're just looking at verses 1 and 2 today. You may want to use that blue Bible in the seat back in front of you. Feel free to do that. If you don't have a Bible, you can take that one with you. That would be our gift to you. And once you are there, I'd ask you to please stand to honor the reading of God's word. And then follow along as I'm going to read our passage for today. This is Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version. Chapter 12, verse 1, our author says, Therefore, since we are surrounded 
by so great a cloud of witnesses. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word, which tells us how we are to run, live this race that is the life you have given us. God, thank you that we are not in it alone, but there's this great cloud of witnesses around us that testifies to your goodness and what you do for us. So Lord, please lead us to lay aside any distractions or sin that is around us. Compel us to run with endurance this race before us. All the while, may we look to Jesus, your son, the beginning and the end, the author, the founder, and the perfecter and finisher of our faith. God, in our time this morning, I pray that we would see him clearly. May we love him more after looking in your word. Thank you for your love for us. Thank you for what your son, Jesus Christ, has done for us. It's in his name that I pray. Amen. You may be seated. So today we're going to talk about this race of life. And if you want to use your outline in front of you, there's several ways we want to think about this race. And we're going to kind of walk through this passage. The first aspect we're going to consider is our audience. Who's watching this race? And our audience is a great cloud of witnesses, a great cloud of witnesses. Our author speaks of a great, a huge cloud, crowd of witnesses. This is coming right after chapter 11. These are those old Testament heroes of the faith. Again, people like Abraham, Moses, and so many others who lived for God. These are the ones. We read in the very last few verses of chapter 11 that all of these were commended through their faith. Verses 39 and 40 of chapter 11 say all these, though commended through their faith. They didn't receive what was promised. We talked about that last week. God has provided something better for us. But they were commended for their faith. Their life witnessed, testified to what it looks like to live for God. They teach us that a faithful life is a life blessed by God and used for his glory. But what makes this audience different is they didn't just show up for the race. No, they actually ran it before us. They've already done the race, finished it. So they're not our rivals competing with us. They're our examples of how we should run. And knowing that they've already finished, that should give us motivation to keep going. The very first verse in our text is, therefore, looking back at those witnesses, what they have done for God, let us run as they ran. One scholar I was reading, F.F. F. Bruce, said it's not so much they who look at us as it is we who look to them for encouragement. So, yes, in a sense, they're our audience, but we look to them and we are encouraged as we run. Now, there's a little bit of an implication. It says we're surrounded by this cloud of witnesses. So it's kind of implying that they may be watching us too, but that's very debated by Bible scholars. Do people who die, do they watch us? It's, it's not 100% clear. We shouldn't press that too far. 
especially because we're told in Scripture to pray to God. We're told that Christ is the one who stands between us and God. We don't need to pray to another person, a family member, a loved one, someone who had a holy life. We don't pray to them. We pray and trust in God. We can directly talk to him. So yes, those who have gone before us may be in a sense watching us and cheering us on, but even as they do that, I think our text is showing us they're not, they're not actually watching us per se. If they're watching us, they're looking to see what God is doing in us. They're looking to see what Christ is doing through us. They're looking to see, wow, look what Jesus is doing through these people who are there. Here's this person who I knew when I was there, and look what Christ is doing in their life. They're looking to see Jesus in us, praise him for what he is doing in our lives. And if they're going to see Jesus in us, that means we need to get ready for this race. We need to prepare for it. And so if our audience is that cloud witnesses, then our preparation is that we lay aside distractions and sin. Lay aside distractions and sin. We're told in verse 1 that we are to lay aside, throw off, rid ourselves, strip off every weight or obstacle, everything that hinders us. Here the author is probably thinking about those ancient uh, Olympic races. Well, to them, they weren't ancient. They were the Olympic races. That's all there were. Well, when those Olympians would run, they wouldn't have fancy jerseys like they have now with their home country. They would take just about everything off because it helped them to run faster. And taking off other clothing so you can run faster, that's common sense. You saw those pictures a few minutes ago. I wouldn't run a 5K wearing this suit. It wouldn't help. I wouldn't move as fast as I could. I would take off layers so I could run faster. That's what the author's saying. If we're going to run this race of life for God's glory, we need to take off distractions, remove them that keep us from running well. Now you may say, well, but pastor, what are those distractions that we're talking about? Well, it may be, Something different for each one of us. Each one of us may have different weights or distractions that keep us from following God. Maybe it's something in your life that takes up a lot of your time. Maybe you invest a lot of time in social media, seeing what people are posting, what the latest tweet is, following well, what's happening, what people's opinions are online. Maybe that's it for you. Maybe you watch a lot of TV or there's a lot of streaming shows that you keep up that you keep up on. You try to want to know what the next one is, the latest thing. What are people talking about? Oh, I need to watch that. Need to binge that tonight and that show t- tomorrow. Maybe it's it's your phone, you text or just use the apps there and you spend all day in it. Maybe it's sports and you always want to know what the latest score is and what happened in this game and that game and that one. Now, now let me be clear. None of those things I said are sin. None of them are bad in and of themselves. But depending on who we are, what we're like, our temperament, our personality, they could keep us from following Christ as closely as we could. It'd be different for each one of us. What is really tempting for one may not be so much for someone else. But maybe one of those things for you keeps your mind from focusing on God. It could be something else. It could be a particular relationship, maybe a romantic relationship or a friendship. And you enjoy spending time with that person, but you know they don't help you follow Christ. In fact, they keep you away from spending time with God and serving his cause. Maybe that's a relationship that needs to be put to the side. 
one scholar at, or actually pastor F.B. Meyer, he was preaching about this. And I like how he said it. He said, thousands of Christians are like waterlogged vessels, my boats. They cannot sink, but they are so saturated with inconsistencies and worldliness, permitted evil in their lives that they can only be towed with difficulty into the celestial port. The, the ship that just barely above the water being towed in. When I saw that image, my mind jumped to a particular movie scene. Maybe you've seen the Pirates of the Caribbean movies, Pirates of the Caribbean. In the very first one, Captain Jack Sparrow, he's riding in a boat. As the boat's going down, just the top of the boat makes it in to the shore. So you could say the boat didn't sink and that he made it to shore, but that's, that's not something to be proud of. That's not an arrival to your destination to rejoice in. And that's not how we're called to live as a follower of Christ, just barely making it till we get there. No, if there's something in our life that's weighing us down, that's taking up the majority of our time, the majority of our energy, the majority of our focus, if our joy is wrapped around something that's not Jesus Christ, that may be a distraction that needs to be removed. Now, don't hear me saying this and think, oh, I'm glad you're talking about this, Pastor John, because this person who's sitting two seats over than me, I know what they do and how much time they spend in this thing or that thing. I know they watch too much TV and they spend too much time online. I'm so glad that you're talking about that for them today. Or I'm going to leave and I'm going to forward the link of this sermon to, to just the person I know who's having those distractions. No, 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 friends, I'm, I'm talking to each one of us. Don't look to the left or the right. Look within. What are the distractions in my life that slow down my pursuit of Jesus Christ, my spiritual race? Again, here I'm not talking about things that are bad in and of themselves. There's things that in moderation we can enjoy and rejoice in. But we're in a race. If you think about those who train for races, these Olympic athletes, they have to make a lot of sacrifices. They can't eat whatever they want, whenever they want to. I mean, maybe if they're in certain events, like that they may be able to, but most of the time they have to sacrifice what they want to eat. They have to sacrifice their free time to spend time in training, in practicing. Their life isn't about, oh, I want to do this or that. It's no, I have to do this to get ready for my race. Well, the same for us. Anything that we lay aside so that we can see Jesus more clearly is worth it. Any distraction we put to the side so we can run more for his glory is worth it. Now, we're not just told to lay aside these weights. We're also told to lay aside sin, the sin that clings so closely. Uh, other translations have easily entangles, ensnares, trips us up. If we're sinning, if we're disobeying God directly what he said, well, that's definitely going to keep us from faithfully following him. Sin restricts us from moving forward in faith. It continuously attacks us. If there's known sin in our life, we must be proactive in getting rid of it. The Apostle Paul tells us we need to put off our old self. That belongs to our former manner, our old way of life. It's corrupt through deceitful desires. We need to be renewed in our minds, in the spirit of your minds. We need to put on a new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. We need to get sin out and have greater focus on God. It's not just saying stop doing this. It's stop doing that so we can start following God 
more closely. So let me ask you, friends, is there sin in your life? Sin that you know, I know this is wrong. I know God says it's wrong, but I know it's in my life. It's something I excuse. It's something I try to hide. I know it's wrong, but I keep doing it. Oh, friend, we we need to get that out. The way we do it first and foremost is by turning away from it and clinging to Christ in faith and trust if you don't know him. And even if you claim you do, that, you know, that sin needs to be removed. It can have damaging effects. Paul says that he does not run aimlessly. He does not box as one beating the air. He disciplines his body. He keeps it under control. Lest after he's preaching to others, after he's telling others about Jesus, I myself should be disqualified. If we're running a race, we don't want to be disqualified. We don't want to be told, no, you, you can't run right now. We want to be running for Christ. If sin is in our life, it keeps us from the race. We want to be in the race God has called us toward. So if you don't know Christ, if you don't have a relationship with him, then turn from sin, believe and trust in what he has done, that he died for you. And if you do know him, then we want to finish well. So we should remove sin and distractions from our lives. That's our preparation So we know who our audience is. We prepared for the race. We're ready to go. So how do we run? How do we do it? What is our race like? Well, our race is one that we run with endurance. Our race is one we run with endurance. We need to run with endurance, perseverance, run patiently through trials without stopping or quitting. Our text says, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. In order to be successful, we need sustained effort and commitment. Now, don't mishear me. Jesus and what he did for us, dying for us, his work, that is alone what saves us. We do not add anything to it. But on the other hand, the Christian faith is not a, well, Jesus saved me so I can sit back, I can let go and let God. That's not a phrase in the Bible. Our lives are to be actively running, seeking to grow to be like our Lord and Savior. This is where this kind of analogy of a race breaks down a little bit because when we watch the Olympics, we don't compete unless there's somebody here who's hiding something and I don't know that there's an Olympic athlete here. Maybe there is, but we we don't compete in those races. We just watch. But the race of life is one that we all must run, that we're all called to run as long as we have breath. One scholar, Michael Kruger, said, we're not told to walk through the Christian life. We're not told to meander or stroll along. We are told to run. It is energetic. It involves perseverance. Our life is one that we run through. Now, there's another side of that, of course. There's seasons in life. There's seasons where we have great joy and contentment, uh, great peace. Things don't seem to be moving as fast as they do. And we're told in Scripture to take time to rest, to recharge, to spend time with God, enjoy the creation that he's given us and the blessings he's brought into our lives. That's absolutely true. But what our passage is emphasizing is that our lives have a purpose. We're called to actively pursue bringing glory to God seeing more people know him, seeing those who do grow in their knowledge of him. We're called to pursue praising God with our lives. 
The good news in this, though, is that this isn't a competition between each of us. Which of us can be more holy, more like Jesus? Can I beat you in my holiness? No, we run this together. We encourage one another. Our author is doing it here. He's done it before in the book. Back in chapter 10, he told them, you have need of endurance. So that he could say, when you run the race, but he puts it this way, when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. Saying, I want you to finish this race. I want you to, so I'm going to help you. And hopefully that's what we do here in this church. We encourage one another. We want one another to finish well, be living for God, rejoice in what we see God is doing in each other's lives. Brothers and sisters in Christ, if you know him, there is a race that is set before, marked out for each and every one of us. God has a plan and purpose for everyone, especially for the lives of his people. We've seen throughout this book in Hebrews, this purpose in action. There's been multiple passages, I think three or four of them, that were really difficult to read because they were making a strong point. That point was God's people finish their races. They don't quit. They don't stop early. They finish what they start. That's how you can tell if somebody knows God. They finish their race. So we must practice active faithfulness. We must run with endurance. We can look at those who came before, like our author did in chapter 11, see how they ran and let that encourage us. But I think there's some, there's a better example that we can look at, and that's Christ himself. He models this endurance. He's the supreme example of it. He's the source of our endurance. If we know him, he alone enables us to endure, to run this race because we belong to him. In fact, if we're going to make it, we need him. And that's why the very next thing our author says, he says, run this race that's set before us, looking to Jesus in verse two. That's our goal, this race, not a finish line, not an end date, but looking to Jesus. In this race, we're called to look to, fix, keep our eyes on, look only at Jesus. We're to stay focused on him and what he has done for us. As I just said, we don't look at a place like a finish line. We don't look at a time like, if I can just get to this age following God, then I can take a break from serving him. No, no we don't look for that, that, those type of goals. We look at a person. We look at Jesus Christ. And it, it really struck me looking at just how remarkable this is, that that's what our author tells us. Again, we just read that chapter 11, this wonderful list of these faithful followers of God, everything Abraham did, Moses, all these other people, these people who lived for God, died for his cause. Why shouldn't we look at them? Shouldn't we look at them? Shouldn't they be the ones we focus on? And our author is saying, they can encourage you, but no, don't look at them. They did all that because they had faith in God. They were focused on him and you should do the same. Look to Jesus. Another scholar, Al Mohler, said the church exists because Jesus died and rose again. The only way to endure is by looking to him. Now, this great cloud of witnesses encourages and inspires us. But the one who keeps us in the race is Christ alone. He's our focus. 
Therefore, what that means for us is we lay aside those distractions, sin, we look away from them and we look to Jesus Christ. We focus on him. How do we do that? What does that look like in our lives? Well, Paul gives us an example in the book of Philippians. He's talking about, he's not necessarily using this race metaphor, but he is a little bit. He's saying, not that I've already obtained this, not that I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. I want to be perfect before God because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I've done this, that I've made it my own, but here's the one thing that I do. I forget what lies behind and I'm straining forward to what lies ahead. So I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God. What is that prize? In Christ Jesus. I forget the things in my past that that weigh me down, that I could get lost in, and instead I focus on Jesus Christ. Looking to Jesus, focusing on him is a habit we need to build into our often busy and often distracted lives. The way we're able to focus on Jesus is by taking time to spend time with him. And it may be helpful to think about some of the, the methods God has given us for growing in faith as that spending time with Jesus. Thinking about Bible reading and prayer as spending time with our Lord. I like that thought because when I was first taught about how to read Scripture in the Bible, um, not that this is wrong, but the phrase that I was taught is you need to spend quiet time with God. And then that's a fine phrase because we're, we're called to spend time that is with God and that's focused away from distractions. So quiet time is a good phrase. Um, but my wife actually introduced me to another phrase, and that phrase is time with Jesus. I need my time with Jesus. And, and I really like that description there because that's what any time we spend in God's word or prayer is really about. It's spending time with our Lord and Savior. Let me say, Pastor, well, how does reading the Bible help me grow close to Jesus? Oh, because you find Jesus on every page of this book. It's my conviction, and you may have heard me say this before, but that every book, every chapter, every verse of the Bible is ultimately about Jesus Christ. And so when we read the Bible, we're saying, Jesus, where are you in here? How can I see Jesus more in what I'm reading in Scripture? How does what I read help me learn more about Jesus and grow closer to him? In prayer, we're talking to him, having a relationship with him. Friends, there's a lot that can distract us in life. There's busyness, jobs, family responsibility. All these things can pull away our time. And I understand that there's seasons, there's some things that we have to do. I, I absolutely get that. And that our time with Jesus may look differently in different stages of life. I understand that. But as much as we are able, as much as we can, we are to lay aside distractions and focus on Jesus Christ. If something can be put aside, it should, so we can focus on him and know him more. And again, this can look different for different people in different times, but he should be our focus. If you spend most of your time reading about the world around us, reading opinions about what's happening here or there or anywhere else, if you spend more time on that than you spend time in Bible reading, in prayer with God, then let me challenge you to look to Jesus. 
there's nothing wrong with knowing about what's going on in the world, but let me save you a lot of time. You're not going to find a savior out there. You're not going to find ultimate good news out there. So don't look for it there. Look to Jesus Christ. And when you do that, you're not looking to this God way up in heaven who cannot understand what you're going through. No, we're looking to Jesus. He was here. He lived as one of us. He ran this race before us. He understands our lives and what we're going through. And our author talks about him now. Who is this Jesus we're looking toward? Well, our Jesus is the beginning and the end of our faith. The beginning and the end of our faith. He accomplishes everything we need for faith and to be saved. In our text, he calls him the founder and the perfecter of our faith. The beginning and the end. He's first the founder. He's the pioneer, the author, the source, the originator, the champion who initiates saving faith. We've seen this elsewhere in Hebrews. Back in chapter two, the author said, it was fitting that he, God, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons, many people to glory, to know him. How did he do this? He made the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Because Christ suffered and died for us, he founded, he started the salvation that brings us home. Another author, George Guthrie, put it this way. He cleared the path of faith so that we may run it. The way is open, and although hurdles exist, the roadblocks have been removed. We can make it because of what he has done. He founded our faith, but he's more than that. Our text also said he's the perfecter. He's the finisher of our faith. He was perfect. He is perfect. Since he's perfect and he lived a perfect life, he died a perfect death for our sin. He rose from the grave in perfection. That means if we follow him, someday we will be perfect too. He has done what he needed to secure our salvation. And when we are with him, we will be perfect. He has put in the work to make us like him. For our salvation, Jesus is the first and the last. Paul writes in Philippians, I'm sure of this. He who began a good work in you, he will bring it to completion when he returns at the day of Jesus Christ. If we know God, he's doing something in us. He's molding and shaping us to be like Jesus and he will finish that work. How did he do this? How do we know that this is something that's going to happen? Well, our text tells us, for the joy that was set before him, he endured death on the cross. He modeled endurance for us by suffering, dying on a cross. And if you ever need to get yourself, I realize that's sometimes more complicated, but if you're in a kind of funk that my life is terrible and you need help getting out of this, it may help to think about Jesus Christ because he suffered in a way that's very difficult for us to even imagine. Crucifixion is a bloody, terrible death. You look at it and you think somebody on the cross, well, when there's nails, maybe they lost too much blood and that's how you die. No, that, that's not how you die on a cross. Nails and arms hold you down so that you have to lift up to breathe. Every breath is excruciatingly painful. And eventually your body just can't do it anymore. And 
So you really die by suffocation, asphyxiation. You can't breathe. That's what kills you on the cross. What a terrible way to die. But that wasn't all that Jesus suffered because he suffered in a way that we cannot imagine. He suffered the full extent of God's wrath, God's anger, God's punishment for sin poured out on him as he was on the cross. Why in the world would Jesus do that? Well, our passage told us for the joy that was set before him. He looked forward to the joy, the reward of his faithfulness. He lived, suffered, and died for God's glory. Again, in the book of Philippians, we read it this way. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And because he has done that, what does God do? Therefore, God has highly exalted him, has bestowed, given him a name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, under the earth, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus looked ahead to that joy, that glory, and so he endured suffering in his race of life. And now, because of that, we have access to God. We can have a relationship with him. That is why he went through it. The reward and joy is that God's people can know him. The Old Testament actually predicted what Christ would, did, would do. The book of Isaiah says it this way. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. He shall bear their iniquities. In many ways, this verse is kind of backwards. So start at the end there. Jesus bore, he bared, he carried our sins. Because he did that, many people are now accounted. God sees us as righteous. God sees us as right before him. He sees Christ. He doesn't see our sin. And because he did that, now Jesus sees that and he's satisfied. He has joy in what he has done because people know God. He suffered and died to save us. He saw that there was joy on the other side of that pain. And so when it came to the cross, that's why he went forward. Our text, uh, verse two tells us that he was despising or scorning, disregarding the shame of his death. His death on a cross, a crucifixion, that's a very shameful death. The Roman Empire only did that for the worst offenders, for slaves who they didn't even view as human, or for the worst criminals. And they did these crucifixions not out of the way, hidden in a corner. Not like if there's if we do executions today of somebody, it's away in a building, nobody sees. No, they did it in a public place. Along the main roads, they would put these crucified people they would do that so everyone would, would see, everyone would have to turn their head away and they'd get the message, don't be like that guy. I don't want to be like him. Again, in the book of Isaiah, it's phrased this way. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Those passing by Christ on the cross would turn their heads away in shame, rejecting him for the shameful death. 
And just so you understand how shameful, humiliating this was, I'm, I'm willing to bet that if you've ever seen somebody portraying the crucifixion, whether in a movie, a TV show, a picture, I'm willing to bet that it's unlikely that you've seen an accurate portrayal of it. And the reason it's unlikely is because when we do things like that, we're too modest. We have a little cloth that we always put over him. When people were crucified, they were naked, completely exposed. It was supposed to be shameful, disgusting. Even today, that idea, we don't want to see that. That's why people don't do that in those movies and films. I'm not arguing that they should. That's not something we want to look at. But that's how shameful that death was. Christ was 100% exposed. Every part of him exposed to the mocking of the crowd. Every part of him exposed to the eyes of everyone who was there in Jerusalem. He was 100% exposed to the weather, the sun beating down on him. He was exposed to pain. He was exposed to sin. He was exposed to God's wrath. It was a shameful death. But the story doesn't end there. Next week, we celebrate Easter. We celebrate when Jesus rose again. Or to use the words of our passage, now he is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He is the place of honor before God in heaven. This is his reward for that faithfulness. We've seen this idea of Christ sitting at God's right hand since the very beginning of the book of Hebrews. Way back in chapter one, the author says he's the radiance of the glory of God. Jesus is the exact imprint of God's nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purification for sins, after he died and rose, he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. Through his faithfulness, through his endurance, Jesus finished the race. And he now has the place of ultimate honor in heaven. Unlike every other person we can compare him to, we could say Jesus truly won the race of life. Earlier in Hebrews, we saw it this way. We see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. We see he's crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. Why? So that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone, for everyone who comes to know him. Friends, in our race of life, we are called to look to Jesus. We do that because Jesus is all of our faith. He's the beginning and the end. He started it and he brings it to completion. He's responsible for all of it. Yes, we're called to run. I spend a lot of time talking about how we're actively supposed to run. Lay aside distraction. Yes, but we only do it in his strength. He finished the race. He sat down in victory. We need his help if we are to reach that place of rest. He's the one who gives us the endurance to keep going in our race. Remember, we did not earn our salvation we're only partaking in, enjoying, experiencing the salvation that Christ earned for us. And that is why we look to and focus on him. You knew it was coming, so here's the Charles Spurgeon quote in the sermon. <laughs> it's a pastor I like, if you haven't heard me share before. He said, remember, it's not your hold of Christ that saves you. It is Christ. It's not your joy in Christ that saves you. 
It is Christ. It's not even really your faith in Christ, though that's the instrument. No, it's Christ's blood and merits. So therefore, look not so much to your hand by which you are grasping Christ as to Christ. Look not to your hope, but to Jesus, the source of your hope. Look not to your faith, but to Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith. He is the one that we look to. If you do not know him, this is why you need a relationship with him. You can't succeed in this race of life, reach that place of victory at the end without him. I encourage you, if you want to know more about him or you think, I I really want this relationship, then please talk to someone about it. Talk to me afterwards or someone else here. How can I know Jesus? How can I see him clearly like you talk about? Oh, we'd be happy to share with you about how you can turn from sin and believe and trust in him. But if you do know him, then this passage is speaking directly to us. It's telling us to look at that great cloud of witnesses around us, to lay aside every distraction and every sin, to run with endurance that race that is set before us. The way we do that is by looking to Jesus. He's the beginning and the end of our faith, our all in all. Look to him, run for him, because he alone is worthy.